Hello, everybody, and welcome. I can see we still have folks shuffling in, but um, why don't we go ahead and get started? I want to thank the audience for joining us for From Corbin to Sanders, our Zionist organizations targeting progressive politicians. So this is a two-part webinar series that Miko Pallet and I cooked up shortly after Bernie Sanders kind of threw in the towel in his run to be the Democratic nominee. So with all of this reflection that is happening on both the side of the Sanders campaign, you know, what went right, what went wrong, but also reflecting on UK Labour's upset late last year, and especially regarding recent reporting that has just come out in the last uh, couple of weeks, which I'm sure will, will be discussed today, we wanted to kind of probe the influence of special interests, pro-Israel political groups, uh, different entities on these campaigns and their corresponding movements, particularly as it relates to uh, their advocacy for Palestinian justice and freedom. So I want to thank this excellent panel that we've assembled here today, and I want to introduce them as well. So first off, we have a former Labor MP for Derby North, uh, city council leader and activist, uh, Chris Williamson. We've also got author of The Battle for Palestine and One Country, a bold proposal to end the Israeli-Palestinian impasse, uh, and co-founder of the Electronic Intifada, uh, Ali Abunima. We've got author of Politics, Another Perspective, Commentary and Analysis on Race, War, Ethics, and the American Political Landscape in the Age of Obama. And uh, this person also has an op-ed out right now on the Black Agenda Report called COVID-19 in America, The Fire This Time. And he's also host of Inside the Issues, uh, Dr. Wilmer Leon. And lastly, uh, we've got author of The General Sun and Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. He's a human rights activist and host of the Miko Pellet podcast, Miko Pellet. So uh, just some quick housekeeping rules for, for this event before I hand things over to Miko. We're hoping to keep this whole thing under two hours with probably the first uh, 60 to 80 minutes dedicated to the panel discussion. But we also wanna make room for some audience Q&A once the panel discussion has wrapped up. So you'll see a little Q&A button down on your Zoom window toolbar. I think it's on the bottom of your screen. And if you have a question that you'd like the, the panel to address on this topic at any point during, uh, during the event, and we're kind of asking folks to keep your questions within the ballpark of the discussion if you can, uh, use that Q&A tool to ask your question. And our event administrator, Michael, will be collecting those throughout the event. If you're having any kind of technical difficulties or the audio is weird or anything like that, or you want to comment about what is being discussed with the other attendees, there is a little chat room, so feel free to use that. Um, Michael, our event admin, is going to be monitoring that and responding. He's also going to be linking any articles or any reference materials that the speakers discussed there. Um, so you can uh, uh, check that out. And then lastly, um, I want to let everybody know that we're hosting a part two of this event. It's the same topic, but it's with a totally different panel. Um, and that's happening one week from today at the exact same time. So uh, if you think everything on this topic is going to get covered today, think again. This is, there's a lot to this. So um, you can register for part two at mikopelled.com. And I think that that's everything. So I'm going to go ahead and pass the reins over to Miko. 
Thank you, Jamil. Thanks for uh, helping set this up and doing all the production. And thank you, Michael, who's behind the scenes there, uh, going through the questions in the chat. Um, and uh, um, thank you, uh, the panelists, uh, Chris, uh, Wilmer, and Ali, for uh, participating in this. <clears throat> I think the question that we that we raise uh, from Sanders, I mean, from yeah, from Corbett to Sanders. Are uh, Zionist and pro-Israeli groups um, intervening and trying to influence um, when it comes to progressive politicians? I think in most people's minds, the answer is yes. I think on the in the progressive camp, a lot of people have a lot of information and know something about this. Um, but it's an incredibly important topic to raise and. Um, I think it's important to actually have the facts and have the information out there. So we find three issues, three questions that um, uh, that we can all discuss, we're going to discuss uh, today to really investigate this and see what we know, what has happened, and what we can do to uh, move forward beyond this. Uh, both Corbyn and Sanders came very close to leading their countries. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, I think in 2017, was only a few thousand votes short of becoming prime minister. Um, <clears throat> uh, Sanders wasn't quite that close, but he did come very, very close. And although they're not identical in their, in their worldview, and Corbyn is probably much more progressive, in both cases, these were candidates that were very, very clear about their intent to hold Israel accountable and to um, recognize and support Palestinian rights, at least in within the realm of international law and United Nations resolutions. And both of them uh, were not able to do this. Both of them stopped short of becoming, uh, of leading their countries. And again, the, the, um, the campaigns by the pro-Israeli groups, those of us that are paying attention, um, were, were fierce. In the UK, I, I was a little bit involved in what was, was happening in the UK because I was participating in some fringe events around the last three um, Labour Party conferences, which is where you know Chris and I met for the first time. And um, the first time I went, it was it seemed that there was this campaign, but it wasn't really working very well. Jeremy Corbyn was quite strong. I remember Chris, you, I came to hear you speak at one of the events. And people in the audience were talking about the possibility of you becoming deputy leader and how this is going to move forward. And there was this real sense of optimism and it all crashed as we all know. And I'll let, ask you to talk about that a little bit. But um, there's, uh, there's a real sense that the, his stance on Palestine and your stance on Palestine um, and uh, demanding justice and demanding to hold Israel accountable was a big part of uh, his fall and eventually also a big part of, of what had happened to you. And I'll let you talk, like I said, I'll let you talk about this. Um, we've seen, um, thanks again, thanks to Al Jazeera, we, uh, th thanks to Al Jazeera, but really thanks to Electronic Intifada, uh, we've seen the, the documentaries that were made about the Israeli lobby, both in the UK and uh, in the US. So the information's out there, probably not enough people have seen it and the links are gonna be available. Uh, here, um, but it's obvious that there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes by pro-Israeli groups. Um, and the weaponizing of anti-Semitism, the weaponizing of the Holocaust, 
I know at least in the United in the UK there were accusations against uh, people who were supporters of Jeremy Corbyn that they were Holocaust deniers, even though they were not. That they were anti-Semitic, even though they were not. Um, certainly here in the UK, the the strong pro-Israeli groups were not happy with Bernie Sanders criticizing Israel over attacking Gaza, and were very unhappy about his. Um, talking about conditioning aid to Israel with its compliance with international law regarding the Palestinians. Um, so again, that's why I decided, you know, we put together this, this panel to hear from people who have been involved, who've been talking about this, writing about this, discussing this. And the first question that we thought we would raise is what evidence do we have that this is happening? What evidence do we have that demonstrates the targeting of U.S and UK progressive pro-Palestine uh, politicians and electoral movements by these groups. And Chris, I think you probably more than anyone at this point have been you know, on the receiving end of this and uh, the results of the last elections uh, were, have, have to do with, what it, with, with this. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the experience you've had with this over the last couple of years and uh, what your thoughts on this in general. So go ahead. No, thanks very much indeed, uh, Miko, for inviting me to participate in what I think is a, a very important discussion because there is almost a, uh, a, a shroud of um, secrecy uh, about this, which is, uh, which is drawn over the role of the uh, Zionists in actually targeting um, pr uh, progressive Politicians like Jeremy in the UK, myself, obviously, and Bernie Sanders, uh, AOC in the States, uh, Ilan Omar, um, because people are fearful. I mean, my experience is that I was targeted almost from the very first couple of weeks of being elected. I gave a, uh, a lengthy interview to the Guardian newspaper and uh, tried to address the various uh, smears which are being leveled against Jeremy, which ranged from him being a, you know, a Czech spy supporting uh, dictatorships, etc. Uh, but also the issue of anti-Semitism. And I, I, I focus particularly on that because I made the point that, you know, of all the people in the House of Commons, Jeremy Corbyn has got a, a record stronger than anybody else on fighting racism and bigotry in all its forms. And I said it was a dirty, low-down trick and bullshit was the term I used and to the Guardian journalist. And she quoted me verbatim on that. And that then became a major issue. And it led to me being targeted by the uh, so-called Jewish labor movement, which as the Electronic Intifada have identified is really a front for the Israeli embassy. And I became uh, public enemy number one. And because I was very close to uh, the agenda that Jeremy Corbyn was promoting, I think they saw my scalp as being very important to undermining the, the whole Corbyn project. And, you know, we know the evidence is there. I mean, not just in terms of what's happened to me, but the Al Jazeera documentary, which, you know, you've already referenced as very clear that there is uh, uh, involvement from the Israeli state. Uh, the uh, Israeli diplomat who was exposed in that documentary had to go back to Israel and he was 
I mean, the argument was always just, this is just a, a one-off, uh, this is a rogue diplomat, this isn't uh, typical. But it did actually lead uh, Jeremy to uh, uh, ask some searching questions about it. It also led uh, Emily Thornbury, to, who was the shadow foreign secretary, to call for a public inquiry into this. Because, uh, you know, look, this is a very serious state of affairs where you have a, a foreign nation interfering in the democratic processes of a sovereign nation, i.e. the United Kingdom. And uh, very clear evidence was, was identified in that uh, documentary. But nothing was ever really done about it. I mean, questions were asked, but then both Jeremy and indeed uh, Emily Thornberry uh, went very quiet, silent on it, you might say. Um, and Jeremy ended up just sort of firefighting these incessant accusations that he was an anti-Semite. Uh, and they just stepped it up and ramped it up. And the more that Jeremy saw to try and placate his assailants, the stronger they became. I mean, I said to Jeremy on a number of occasions, please stop apologizing because you of all people have got nothing to apologize for. And every time you apologize, every time you give ground to the people who are attacking you, it's simply feeding the beast, making them stronger. And ultimately, all they're interested in doing is actually undermining and, and dismantling the Corbyn project and taking you out, Jeremy. But unfortunately, the people around him seem to feel that the best tactic was to, you know, continually apologise uh, in the hope that that would draw a line under it. I mean, and John McDonnelly was a very close confidant of, of Jeremy, said on a number of occasions that we needed to do X, Y or Z and that would draw a line under it. I mean, for example, like adopting the IHRA examples, which, you know, many, many um, anti-Zionist Jewish members of the party and many other socialist members of the party were very opposed to. I spoke at a rally outside the National Executive Committee meeting that was considering adopting all of the examples of the IHRA, uh, and there was a big rally there. And most of the people at that rally were, were Jewish members and supporters of the Labour Party, you know. So, but the way it was portrayed in the media, the way uh, our sort of uh, opponents tried to uh, portray it was that uh, it was the mainstream Jewish opinion in Britain that wanted Labour to adopt the IHRA, that felt Labour posed an existential, existential threat to the Jewish community in Britain. And, uh, and this was repeated over and over and over again uh, on, the, uh, on the national uh, broadcast uh, media outlets and in the print media outlets on, a, on a, almost a daily basis. Hey Chris, if I, if I can just interrupt real quick, just, just to clarify to, to everybody, the IHRA is an acronym for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, a Zionist, uh, very clear Zionist group who decided to redefine what it means, what anti-Semitism means. And that definition has been, has, it includes basically criticism of Israel. And I'm generalizing, I won't get into the exact definition, but you can find it online if you go to IHRA, uh, IHRA definition. So being anti-Semitic is no longer, according to them, just being racist and targeting Jewish people, uh, but it includes all these other things. And they've been very successful in getting the Labour Party, other political, you know, basically governmental and non-governmental organizations 
um, boards of universities here in the United States and the different states to accept this new definition of uh, anti-Semitism. And then it includes, well, people like uh, certainly the four of us um, who dare to say certain things about the state of Israel and reject Zionism perhaps and so forth. The other point I just want to make, you mentioned UK Jews and how they were saying that people like yourself and the Labour Party were presenting an existential threat. Um, there are only about 260,000 Jews in the UK. Um, and from research that I've done, about 50,000 to 60,000 of those Jews are part of the ultra-Orthodox community and they reject Zionism and the state of Israel altogether. Um, like one rabbi said to me, you drive around Stamford Hill, I'll give you 100 pounds for any Israeli flag you find. So I, th I just wanted to throw that in there for the, for the listeners to, 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 to give some context. Um, but you were, you, were, you were beat up pretty badly for saying that labor has been apologizing too much, even though yeah, you're absolutely I mean, right. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, my position is, um, I mean, I've fought racism all my life. I mean, I, I left school as a young man at 15 years of age. I didn't go to university. Um, I went to Polytechnic in later life. Uh, I worked on a building site. And uh, I mean, casual racism in the 1970s was, was, was endemic, really. And uh, I was an active member of the Anti-Nazi League and regularly confronted uh, anti-Semites, bigots, racists on the street and on building sites and nearly got, you know, beaten up on more than a few occasions. And so it was particularly hurtful then to be accused of being, um, effectively being a bigot, a racist, you know, when I spent my whole life fighting uh, racism in all its uh, forms. And look, and you're absolutely right with the IHRA, it was most certainly um, pressure brought to bear for the Labour Party to adopt the IHRA uh, examples, because, precisely because it brought into the definition of anti-Semitism, criticism of Israel. And I prefer the Oxford Dictionary definition of anti-Semitism, which is very, very clear which talks about uh, you know, hatred of, uh, of, of Jewish people. And, and it's a very simple uh, one sentence explanation and everybody can understand that. Whereas the IHRA, I think it runs to about 500 odd words and it's all about ensuring that you know, criticism of Israel um, is, is, is caught in, in that definition, which then gave the ability to the opponents of pro-Palestinians inside the Labour Party, most notably, of course, Jeremy Corbyn, to then take action against Jeremy's allies, against the socialists in the Labour Party, who were you know, universally pro-Palestinian and, and opposed to the apartheid state of Israel. And of course, this gave them license to do that. I mean, they were already making the, uh, the accusations about anti-Semitism, even before I got uh, real elected to Parliament because I was in Parliament from 2010 to 2015 and then lost my seat by a very narrow uh, margin and then when Jeremy got his name onto the ballot paper I was you know a very high profile supporter of his and and very quickly after that I started getting accusations about anti-semitism obviously as did Jeremy and many many others but it was difficult for the uh you know, the pro-Zionist, the predominantly the right wing in the Labour Party to take action against individuals until such time as the IHRA uh, examples were brought in as part of the Labour Party rulebook. And this was yet another concession. And the other interesting thing, uh, if I could just say, uh, Miko, is that uh, some of the people who have been singled out for the most virulent attacks are 
socialist Jewish, socialist, anti-racist, anti-Zionist Jewish members of the Labour Party, most notably people like Jackie Walker, who uh, a film was made about uh, her experience and indeed the, the wider attacks on anti-Zionist Jews inside the Labour Party. It's a film called Witch Hunt, which if anybody watching is interested, I would highly recommend that they, that they uh, view it because it really sets out uh, the, you know, these tactics and how uh, you know, anti-Zionist Jews in particular have been targeted, but it's so grotesque. You know, Jackie Walker, a black Jewish woman, expelled from the Labour Party, accused of anti-Semitism. Cyril Chilson, long-standing member of the Labour Party, who was born in Israel, served in the Israeli Defence Force. His wife, born in Israel, served in the Israeli Defence Force. Very strong pro-Palestinian, lived in the UK now for some time. Cyril's parents survived Auschwitz. He was accused of anti-Semitism and he was expelled from the Labour Party. Tony Greenstein, the son of a rabbi whose father stood up to Oswald Mosley's fascists at the Battle of Cable Street, was accused of anti-Semitism and he's been expelled from the party. And so the list goes on. It's so grotesque, it's so despicable. And, uh, it, you know, I felt very passionately about it and uh, I felt it was my obligation as a socialist to speak out for people who had been falsely accused, particularly, I don't know, I just found it particularly uh, offensive that, that, you know, that long-standing Jewish uh, members of the party had been accused of anti-Semitism. Just didn't, you know, it just didn't seem to compute or make any sense to me whatsoever. And I felt it was so important, therefore, that we, you know, that we had to stand to it. But it illustrates the, you know, the power that the lobby has because not one other Labour MP, even the MPs who sit in the so-called socialist campaign group of Labour MPs, felt able to speak out in my defence or indeed in anybody else's defence. So there's been many other high profile um, people who have been accused falsely and then subsequently expelled and not a single a member of the uh, socialist campaign group of Labour MPs has spoken out. And what's very interesting is that um, some of the Muslim uh, uh, MPs, uh, Zara Sultana being one of the most notable amongst them, has been singled out for attack. Uh, and it is Islamophobic attacks which have been levelled against her by the pro-Zionists. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, she's been uh, made to... Uh, you know, she's a grovelling apology for uh, some of the statements that she's made, which absolutely, uh, you know, don't merit an apology in any way, shape or form. But what's happened, of course, is that we're perhaps getting into the sort of next question, really, in terms of tactics and so on, is that um, the organisation of the left that was established momentum to try and maintain the momentum of Jeremy Corbyn's uh, leadership election uh, victory in 2015, uh, was uh, led by uh, John Lansman, who himself is a, is a Zionist. And, uh, you know, they then took on the, the whole witch hunt against um, pro-Palestinian uh, uh, activists in the Labour Party. And the Jewish voice for Labour was dismissed by John Lansman. Words to the effect, well, you know, they're not really part of the, the Jewish uh, community. I mean, it's a, sort of delegitimizing. Um, uh, people in that way, uh, it, it, you know, illustrates really, you know, the depths to which they will plumb in order to pursue their, their goal. And obviously their goal was to dismantle the uh, Corbyn project and then utterly destroy it. And that's what they've achieved. Now we have somebody uh, in the form of uh, Keir Starmer who 
says he, you know, is Zionist, supports Zionism, but indeed all of the three candidates uh, who were standing for the Labour leadership utterly capitulated to the Board of Deputies uh, with the 10 um, pledges that they were expected to, to make, which included things like uh, suspending or expelling anybody who had the temerity to speak on a platform with or speak in, in supported terms about anybody else who has been suspended or expelled for allegations of anti-semitism being made against them. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's an incredible state of affairs that the Labour Party's got itself into now, and I, I, I frankly can't see what means they have now of extricating themselves from it. it it's, a, it's a very worrying state of affairs for the long-term future of the Labour Party. Certainly it's a long-term future of the Labour Party as a progressive force in Britain. Well, it seems that a lot of this is guilt by association. Both, both the accusations that were leveled against you, which are absurd, some of which have to do with guilt by association. You either stood by someone or you spoke for someone or you, you know, um, which is really quite absurd, which is why the, the term witch hunt is so, so appropriate. Um, I, I had a small experience uh, last year in Liverpool, or the year before that, I should say, uh, we saw Jeremy on the street and, and took a picture with him and I was wearing this button, the BDS button, and I asked him if it was okay to take a picture and post it with this button and he agreed. He said it was okay. And the next, that afternoon, the Daily Mirror, I believe, posted the picture and said, look, Jeremy Corbyn with the known anti-Semite Holocaust denier, Miko Pellet. You know, I mean, how absurd can you, I mean, it's really quite absurd. And what you said about Jewish Voice for Labor, which is, you know, all the events that I've been to in the last few years that they've held, including, I believe, one where you spoke, were packed. I mean, we're talking about a huge number of people that are associated with that group who oppose this witch hunt and who oppose this lack of freedom of speech on, uh, on Israel. Um, Ali, I want to turn to you, and um, you, you've written a lot, you've been involved a lot on this issue, uh, you've researched a lot. Of course, you're the one who, or at least Electronic Intifada, put out the, 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 the support documentary, that, that maybe you could talk about that as well. Um, but, but uh, you know, go ahead and, 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 and tell us what you know, what your thoughts are on this, on this, um, on this issue, on this question. Well, thank you, Miko, and thank you, Jamil, for uh, bringing us together. It's, it's, uh, it's an effort to do this and uh, to bring us out of our isolation. So I really appreciate that. And it's wonderful to, to be on the panel with Chris and with uh, Dr. Wilmer. Um, and listening to Chris, it's of course, you know, uh, just absolutely devastating what the Israel lobby has done to him, done to so many other people who are lifelong anti-racists, just like Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, the perversity of taking someone like Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who was really on the front lines getting arrested, protesting against apartheid in South Africa, a lifelong opponent of, of anti-Semitism and racism, while the people who are in power in the UK, who are now accusing him of anti-Semitism, you know, the, the head, the, the leaders of the Conservative Party, those thugs supported uh, apartheid in South Africa, supported Thatcher when she opposed uh, sanctions on South Africa, and that they have, the, frankly, the chutzpah to accuse someone like Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn, or like Chris, or like Jackie Walker, or Tony Greenstein, and so many other 
lifelong anti-racist activist of anti-Semitism shows the utter perversity of this campaign. And, but what I want to do is really step back and give some background to this because your initial question was, what's the evidence we have? Uh, you know, is this just all, you know, just stuff that's happening? And of course it isn't. This is very much part of a, a strategy that has come from Israel. And, and it's not some kind of conspiracy theory. All you have to do is read the documents and reports that, uh, that come from Israel and its various think tanks and its Ministry of Strategic Affairs and so on. And I think, at least in recent history, a key document was published 10 years ago in 2010 uh, by uh, an outfit called the Reut Institute. It's an Israeli think tank with very close ties to the Israeli government and the Israeli intelligence apparatus. And this uh, report, the Reut report as it, it came to be known, was really uh, uh, set the agenda for Israel and its lobby uh, over the past 10 years. And based, the basic observation of this report was that the main threat to Israel was no longer military. It wasn't going to be columns of tanks crossing Israel's borders. Uh, and therefore, a military response was no longer the way Israel was going to survive over the long term. Just the same way apartheid South Africa was never defeated militarily. The, the apartheid army in South Africa always had the warplanes and the tanks and the cannons and everything, by the way, mostly supplied by Israel. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. Um, but it was defeated morally, it was defeated politically, it was defeated internationally. So tanks and warplanes couldn't uh, allow apartheid South Africa to survive. They were not enough. And, and so the Reut Institute said, if Israel only relies on military tactics, it risks going the way of apartheid South Africa or East Germany. And so you have to see what is the real threat to Israel in the 21st century it's political, it's cultural. It's that Israel is more and more being seen in the same light as apartheid South Africa. And the erosion of support is most visible on the left among progressives. You have to remember that in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, uh, Israel was uh, seen wrongly, but widely as a, uh, a sort of a, socialist experiment with kibbutzes, the fact that the kibbutzes were, uh, you know, built on ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages was, was overlooked. You had all these uh, America, even Bernie Sanders boasts about how he went to a kibbutz at one point, and various European political leaders went to kibbutzes in their youth and, and have this nostalgic idea of Israel as this sort of socialist or social democratic paradise. But Certainly after the first intifada in the late 1980s, that started to erode dramatically. And that accelerated in the 1990s as Israel shifted more and more to the open uh, far right, no more with this sort of uh, social democratic seasoning on top, uh, you know, an openly racist state. So the loss of support on the left accelerated and we've seen Israel has become more and more a right-wing 
an extreme right-wing cause. You see that in the phenomenon of, um, in the United States, people uh, hanging Confederate flags and Israeli flags together, or uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil marching under an Israeli flag just the other day. Israel is now the, the, the model for right-wing extremists and even right-wing anti-Semites like uh, uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister in Hungary, uh, and so on. So the Reut Institute saw this in 2010 and they said, look, we have to stem the loss of support for Israel, particularly on the left. And they identified two parallel strategies. One is to try to uh, split the left, uh, to sort of divide it into what they called the soft critics of Israel, the people who, you know, they're a, they're a little bit hand-wringing about, oh, well, Israel shouldn't build settlements, and we're worried about a two-state solution, and Israel should be a little bit nicer. Uh, and the people who really have a fundamental critique of Zionism as a racist ideology that uh, promotes the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians so that uh, uh, settler, settler colonists can take their place, and particularly the BDS movement. And so the, the, the good critics of Israel, the soft critics, and the bad critics who uh, fundamentally reject Zionism and support BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. So what do you do? You, you have to go after the uh, so-called delegitimizers, the bad critics, punish them, uh, smear them, attack them, isolate them, exclude them. This is all in the Reut Institute report. Uh, this was said in the open. They talk about sabotage and attack. Those are the words that the Reut Institute used at the time. And on the other side, uh, what, what do you do about the soft critics is you have to sort of seduce them. And this involves a, a major international brand Israel campaign to market Israel as this sort of progressive paradise for the 21st century. So it's no longer about grim social democratic, so, you know, socialist kibbutzes and, you know, people working on the land because, you know, millennials aren't interested in going to work on farms in Israel. Uh, so you have to sell Israel for the 21st century. So how do you do that? You sell it as, as gay friendly, uh, mostly a bogus narrative, by the way. Uh, but pinkwashing. So you claim that Israel is this LGBTQ haven in a region where, uh, you know, supposedly uh, people who engage in same-sex sex are being thrown off buildings. Uh, greenwashing, marketing Israel falsely again as this, um, you know, uh, source of environmental technologies and green energy and so on, when in fact Israel was one of the worst emitters per capita of uh, greenhouse gases in the region, as well as destroying the environment in the occupied West Bank, using the occupied West Bank, which Israel claims is its holy land, using it as a garbage dump, literally, setting up got illegal garbage dumps next to Palestinian communities, while the settlements pour raw sewage into Palestinian water sources. So greenwashing, a false narrative that Israel is this uh, you know, environmental haven. And of course, marketing Israel using sex, uh, uh, Tel Aviv beaches, 
and uh, you know Israeli soldiers doing cute little dances on social media, and um, and also uh, the Eurovision Song Contest is a recent example of pink washing Israel and trying to make it cool. So these twin strategies uh, we we see ongoing from before 2010, but particularly uh, uh, particularly after 2010. And then I'll mention just one other key moment, which was 2014, the uh, last uh, major uh, attack on Gaza when Israel murdered one in a thousand uh, Gaza residents. One in every thousand Gaza residents was killed by Israel over 51 days in the summer of 2014, including 550 children. That's an average of 11 children a day and it was done with weapons supplied by the Obama administration at the time, supplied by the European Union and others. And uh, that moment uh, dramatically eroded, wiped out whatever gains the Reut Institute thought Israel had made. And in particular, it was a moment of sort of open solidarity between Palestinians and uh, black Americans in the United States organizing around the uh, police murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson and the protests in Ferguson. And after that, we see the Reut Institute and other Israeli strategic think tanks uh, openly fretting about the identification of the Ferguson and Black Lives Matter movement with the struggle for Palestinian rights. And after that, we see the Israel lobby Going after the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, that shows up in, in uh, the U.S.-Israel lobby film. Explicitly, Israel uh, lobby operatives uh, going to venues and pressuring them to cancel Black Lives Matter events to punish this movement and silence it for uh, many prominent members expressing solidarity with Palestine. So that, and of course you see, and Chris can talk about that, a similar pattern uh, in the UK as well. Now I'll just uh, end these comments with uh, mentioning the Al Jazeera documentaries, because there were two. There was one called The Lobby, which focused on the UK, and which shows the um, efforts to fabricate uh, a fake, pro-Israel grassroots movement within the Labour Party. This documentary reveals incontrovertibly direct Israeli government meddling in the Labour Party. Nobody has been able to refute it because it's all there on, on the screen. It shows um, prominent Labour MPs like uh, Joan Ryan, who is the head of Labour Friends of Israel, fabricating uh, accusations of anti-Semitism against an ordinary rank and file member of the Labour Party because she had the temerity to question Labour Friends of Israel's uh, 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 silence about Israel's settlement policies. That documentary was broadcast by Al Jazeera and you can see it online if you just search for Al Jazeera the Lobby UK. It was broadcast, you can see it online. I strongly recommend it to everyone. There was a second documentary which focused on the lobby in the US. Another brilliant piece of work done by a really fantastic journalist at the Al Jazeera Investigations Unit, which is sort of a, 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 a special unit within Al Jazeera. 
and reveals similar meddling by the Israel lobby in the US. And that documentary was suppressed. And it was suppressed after Qatar and Al Jazeera came under intense pressure from this very same Israel lobby. And that's the one that uh, the Electronic Intifada was able to get hold of and put online. And so if you search for the Lobby USA, um, you can, uh, or just uh, uh, watch the film, the Israel lobby didn't want you to see, search for that, it will come up and perhaps someone will, uh, will post it in the comments here. Uh, and that was the one that we were able to get a leaked copy of and it's also uh, essential viewing. What, what is remarkable about both of these films is that they were just ignored. Uh, the, 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 the UK film got a little bit more attention. Boris Johnson, who was then the UK foreign office, uh, foreign minister, was required to sort of address it in parliament and they did brush it under the carpet. The Israeli spy, I, I mean, that's what he was, Shai Masak, who was working out of the Israeli embassy, was bundled off back to Israel and the whole thing was brushed under the carpet. But um, the US film was just ignored by the mainstream media and by democratic party elites and so on. They just pretended it never happened. Um, you just have to imagine, I said this many times, you just have to imagine if it had been say about supposed Russian meddling, uh, it would have been this massive global story. There would have been congressional hearings and so on. But it's a film that documented Israeli meddling in American politics. It documented US-based Israel lobby organizations working as agents of the Israeli government to spy on and sabotage Americans exercising their First Amendment rights and doing so without being registered as foreign agents uh, of uh, a government. Uh, groups like the Israel on Campus Coalition, uh, the uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and um, the Israel Project, among others, their activities uh, are really laid bare in this uh, film. Yeah, you know, it's um, it seems like it seems like the um, the narrative is the most important thing right now. It's like you said, Ali. It's not about columns of tanks and 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 uh, warplanes attacking the small state of Israel, which used to be the narrative. Today, probably the you know the, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel is 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 the place where where you know this is like the situation room, if you will, where all of this is being discussed, where all of this being is being um, this war is actually being fought, and the, the Zionist narrative, which is really quite absurd, which says that uh, Jewish people who mostly have not lived in Palestine over the last 2,000 years have a right to be there at the expense of Palestinians who actually lived there for the last 2,000 years. And then portraying Palestinians as terrorists and haters and anybody who supports them as anti-Semitic. That's really in a nutshell, this, this narrative. And they know that if you start chipping away at it, it's all going to hell because it's a narrative that's built on one lie after the other. But that is the holy grail. They have to protect it. That's why it was obvious, I think, from the very beginning, at least to me and, and, and probably others, that there's no way they would allow Jeremy Corbyn to become prime minister. There's no way they would allow somebody like Chris Williamson to continue a career in politics. 
they would do everything they can to stop uh, Sanders. Uh, although perhaps, like you said, Sanders was far more Zionist. Um, and, um, and they start very low. They don't start in Washington, D.C. You see them working, or at least I see them working here in the U.S., on the level of city council elections, you know, people who run for city council, people who run for a state legislature and so forth, very, very local politics uh, that they were, they're already there pushing and pushing and lobbying and applying pressure. And uh, Wilmer, you and I have talked about this a lot on your show. And um, uh, I'd love to hear your take on this, on this, uh, on this issue. So why don't you go ahead? Well, thank you, uh, Miko, uh, for the invitation and the opportunity to participate in this very, very important discussion with you, Ali and Chris. Uh, I thought I would provide a slightly broader historical context as the answer uh, to the question. Uh, people have a tendency to deny that, uh, that this is real because they don't, they don't connect the dots and, and they don't see or they, they tend to look at these issues and events as, as happening in in a vacuum. So what evidence do we have that, that demonstrates uh, the targeting of U.S. and U.K. progressives? This can be a fairly, this can be, the answer can be, I think, fairly complex depending on how far back, particularly in the United States, uh, you want to go. Uh, we have a history that is uh, replete with evidence demonstrating the targeting of U.S. and U.K. progressives. In, in 1968, uh, what was called the Ocean Hill and Brownsville Parents Group versus the Teachers Union in New York City. There was a strike in 1968. Uh, the JDL, uh, what then was, at that time was described as a newly formed Jewish paramilitary organization, they created this campaign of fear the teachers union, uh, working through the head of the teachers union, Al Shanker, claimed that the lives of Jewish teachers in the in the in the school district uh, had been threatened by this uh, African American organization that wanted to take control of schools in its in its district, and they claimed that if the community control was allowed to exist, that the black governing boards of the school system they would fire all the Jewish teachers and replace them with black teachers and that Jews in New York just would not be safe. And from that was created this myth of black anti-Semitism. And when you look at the history and when you look at what was actually being fought for, it wasn't anti-Jewish, it was anti-miseducation. But that's how the community control of schools was characterized by the JDL to protect what it saw as the interest of Jewish teachers in predominantly black schools. Uh, in terms of more fairly recent history, in 1975, you had President Gerald Ford was angry that Israel had refused to leave the Sinai after the 1973 war, and Ford suspended aid to Israel for six months. And he made a speech that, according to Jeffrey Blankford in the Israel Lobby on the Left, was supported by Henry Kissinger. And it called for a reassessment of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Well, within weeks of Gerald Ford giving that speech, APAC 
had a letter signed by 76 senators expressing their support for Israel. And with that, Gerald Ford backed down. Uh, in 1982, we know about Congressman Paul Finley. He had served, I think, 22 years in the House of Representatives, and he went down in defeat after he crossed the political Maginot line and uh, took a meeting or had a meeting with uh, uh, Chairman Yasser Arafat. And the pro-Israeli lobby in Washington saw to it that uh, Paul Finley was not returned to Congress. Um, in, in 1988, you have a, a APAC internal staff memo urging Jewish supporters to raise questions about uh, Reverend uh, Jesse Jackson threatening his presidential campaign. They were trying to dig up dirt on his sex life and his finances. Uh, the memo was entitled News Suggestions for Reporters, and they uh, were, again, trying to dig up as much dirt as they could um, on Reverend Jackson, primarily because of his support for, uh, for Palestinians, his, his support for other Middle East causes that were perceived to be uh, contrary to the uh, interests of, of Israel. Um, they were looking for, as they said in the memo, um, seeds of information to plant. The memo said, quote, we have more than enough articles on Jackson unless you can find someone willing to spill the beans on his extramarital affairs and finances of Operation Push. You get to 2002 with former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. Uh, she became a target of the Jewish lobby because she did not support the Sharon government. And she opposed the atrocities that were being committed by it against the Palestinians. Uh, simply put, as Yuri Avernay wrote in Manufacturing Anti-Semites, quote, the Jewish establishment found a counter-candidate who was uh, Denise Majette a practically unknown black woman injected huge sums of campaign, uh, huge sums of money into the campaign, because at that time, Georgia, I think still does, had open primaries, and they defeated Cynthia, Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. Uh, Abernay uh, continued, uh, all of this happened in the open with fanfares to make a public example so that every senator and congressperson would know that criticizing Sharon is tantamount to political suicide. Then we get more current with uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, and she was attacked by APAC and the ADL, and she was ob objecting to political pressure that was being put on her from Democrats and Republicans. They wanted her to, they wanted everybody to express loyalty to Israel. And she said, quote, I should not be expected to have allegiance or pledge support to a foreign country in order to serve my country in Congress. She continued, I have not said anything about the loyalty of others, but spoke about the loyalty expected of me. And that was at the time when um, uh, Republicans in Congress 
had introduced the Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act of 2019, which endorsed legislation adopted in more than 24 states in this country that were denying contracts to, uh, denying contracts to or barring state investments and employment with American individuals or groups who supported boycotts of Israel or who refused to sign oaths affirming that they would not boycott Israel. And then most recently, as you all have been uh, talking about so, so clearly, uh, what's been, what, what happened to Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the British member of parliament. So I won't, I won't uh, reiterate, reiterate that. Um, um, but, but, but except to say, um, I, I see the attacks on Corbyn as a cover, uh, these ad hominem attacks uh, for his positions on promising to tax privatized utilities and rail companies back into private, uh, back into public ownership, tax multinational companies like Google and Amazon. Uh, he promised to stop arms sales to Israel and Saudi Arabia, colonial history. Um, he's fighting poverty and uh, talking about uh, ending continued support for repressive regimes across the, uh, across the globe, such as the Zionist government in Israel. So my only point there is, as I look at it way from the outside, um, yes, his uh, the, the accusations of anti-Semitism are being hurled at him at breakneck speed, but I, I just think that there are other issues along with his challenging the support for Israel that are being, uh, th that the anti-Semitism label is being used to counteract. Um, and then that, uh, that is also very similar to the attacks on Senator Bernie Sanders, and as uh, Miko, as you mentioned at the top, um, Sanders and Corbyn have different worldviews, but they're both anti-Zionist. Uh, uh, they are uh, anti-racist. Uh, they are unapologetically uh, operating on the left side of the political spectrum. And uh, they clearly are challenging the established order and what conservatives see as their sources of, of power and privilege. And when Sanders came out and uh, made his comments about um, uh, Israel being racist and being an apartheid regime um, and his refusal to speak before APAC, uh, he, uh, he wrote that, uh, I remain concerned about the platform APAC provides for leaders who express bigotry and oppose basic Palestinian rights. For that reason, I will not attend the APAC conference. You had in this country a broad, a cross-section of uh, Jewish community leaders, including prominent rabbis from all branches of American Judaism that quickly put together a, an open letter and they circulate, they had, I think, 300, almost 350 signatures uh, rejecting what they claim to be Sanders' outrageous comments. And they were praising 
APAC's bipartisanship as, quote, one of the last remaining vehicles in American politics that proactively seeks to bring Americans from across the political spectrum to achieve a common goal. But they never articulate what that common goal is, which I think is one of the major points of this conversation today. Um, among those signing that letter was a Rabbi Stanley Davids, a Rabbi Emeritus of Temple, uh, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, Emmanuel, uh, mm -hmm. Dunwoody, Georgia. Uh, he was also president of the Association of Reform Zionists of America. Um, he, virtue of the people he chooses to gather around himself, and by virtue of the statements he's made regarding Israel, has very weak standing to criticize APAC. Uh, he describes himself as a lifelong Democrat um, and critical of what he called the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, quote, the far left Democrats have drunken the Kool-Aid of anti-Zionism as part of this worldview, and I really regret that. Then you had, yeah. even, you had even Mike Pence um, speaking to APAC, and he accused Bernie Sanders of siding with Israel's enemies for supporting Palestinian rights. He said Bernie Sanders would be the most anti-Israel president in the history of the United States, as he excoriated Sanders over his criticism of the government, saying, in the days ahead, we must ensure the most pro-Israel president in the history must, of the United States must not be replaced by one who would be the most anti-Israel president in the history. That's why they needed four more years of as, Trump. As, as I'm sure he also heard. pimped. I'm sorry, as I'm sure you've heard, you know, uh, at the at the un unveiling of the uh, Trump peace plan, or so-called peace plan, Netanyahu crowned uh, Trump with that uh, distinction of being the most pro-Israel uh, president, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, in the history and so forth. But I'm I'm going to interrupt you here for just a second to move on to the next question, just for okay. the time. Um, you, you talked about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and what is happening there. And, um, and what I want to do is I want to move on to the next two questions and maybe combine them just for the sake of uh, allowing more time later for the, for the Q&A. Um, what tactics are, are you know, do we, do we uh, recognize that they employ and how do we tackle this dangerous phenomenon? And again, Chris, I think you're like, you're, you're almost a test case of the tactics that they were used. I remember uh, you and I walking together in, uh, in, uh, in Brighton last at the last convent, uh, you know, labor conference. And you were telling me about how you were fighting as you were fighting and felt like uh, the court was coming down on your side. You were, again, new accusations were leveled against you. Yeah. So there was no, no room to breathe, no room to even defend yourself. As, and of course, these are all, these are all outrageous nonsense accusations, but there was a barrage of them. And I think also you speak to the to, to the next question, which is uh, how we tackle this, because you form basically a new movement, and you've got the festival of resistance, and you've got this whole resistance movement, and perhaps you can talk about that, because I think it's a, it's a great example. So let's combine the the two questions sure. of identifying the tactics and then how we move forward. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, the tactics were relentless, and uh, they didn't give you, as you say, you know, moments to really breathe. 
Uh, and obviously I wasn't the only victim. Uh, it was anybody, frankly, who put the head above the parapet to support the Palestinian cause. Uh, and, and I think uh, Wilma's point as well is interesting because there was a, a coalition of forces between the neoliberals and the, the Zionists. Uh, and, and they're one and the same in, in many circumstances, but uh, others, you know, I've never heard them necessarily speak about the issue before. Suddenly, we're very exercised about um, anti-Semitism, uh, and this was true certainly of the right-wing media in this country. And they used tactics on social media. Uh, we know that they were trawling through social media posts to try and find anything that could be used or misrepresented in order to make an allegation against that individual to get them suspended. And there were hundreds, thousands of people, uh, activists. I might describe them as Jeremy's Praetorian Guard who were being systematically thrown under the bus on an industrial scale. And it was right across the piece. You'd got the mainstream media on side. Um, they were um, you know, making these uh, absurd accusations. You know, right-wing newspapers that uh, day after day are demonizing um, uh, refugees and asylum seekers to the country, suddenly having screaming headlines about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party uh, and accusing somebody, a man of peace, a more gentle individual you could probably be difficult to find than Jeremy Corbyn, whose record stands any examination in relation to his position on, on fighting all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism. And yet he was being held up as this uh, epitome of, uh, of, of bigotry, and anti-Semitism. And you'd got uh, organizations like the Jewish Labour Movement that we should mention previously, also Momentum, were, uh, were colonized for this purpose uh, to uh, join in the witch hunt and to uh, accuse falsely people, including people like Jackie Walker, who indeed was the vice chair of Momentum. She was thrown, she's a black Jewish woman, you know, married to a Jewish guy, uh, was uh, thrown under the bus. and. Uh, was absolutely because of her uh, um, sort of anti-Zionist uh, position, her um, opposition to a two-state solution. She believes in a one-state solution in uh, to the to the conflict in in Palestine, Israel, and this was seen as beyond the pale. You've got the chief rabbi um, in in Britain speaking out at the height of the general election, attacking the Labour Party, attacking the leader of the party and uh, essentially urging uh, people not to support the, the, uh, the Labour Party in the general election in that way. You've got senior politicians who were members of the uh, Labour Friends of Israel, people like Margaret Hodge, who were drawing an equivalence between the horrors of the Holocaust and receiving a letter from the Labour Party reminding her of her uh, obligations as an MP. This is after she'd said in the chamber of the house of commons albeit behind the speaker's chair in front of tory mps who were exiting the chamber at the time and jeremy corbyn was leading the chamber at that time and she accused him if you excuse my language this is what she accused him of being a a fucking anti-semite and a racist and she got a letter simply saying that isn't really the appropriate behavior of an mp you know and you need to mind your essentially mind your p's and q's um, but all the people who said the most modest of things have been, have been suspended and expelled from the Labour Party. And, and uh, you know, so, so this was a sort of tactics which were being 
uh, deployed. Um, and you have to remember as well that the parliamentary Labour Party, around 50% or more, are members of uh, Labour Friends of Israel. And, you know, they were um, ruthless, frankly, in their, uh, in their uh, attacks, uh, uh, secret, uh, you know, cabals of, uh, you know, to, to work out how they could mount the next attack on Jeremy. I mean, there was the coup and then there was uh, the, you know, the attack on, on me. And when I was um, reinstated to the party, because I was suspended, unfairly in the first instance and then it went through a, a process in the party and a panel considered the arguments uh, considered my representations and reinstated me to the party that led to a massive fury in the media uh, led by people like Tom Watson who was the deputy leader of the party and a prominent uh, uh, member of Labour Friends of, of Israel and uh, a letter was signed by I think over a hundred Labour MPs and, uh, and peers to go to the next meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party calling for the whip to be withdrawn from me for a year and for an investigation to be mounted into how it happened that I ended up being reinstated into the Labour Party. That then frightened the horses, it spooked the, uh, the bureaucracy which is utterly broken and, and completely uh, uh, sort of compliant with the, uh, the sort of Zionist lobby and uh, you know, doing their bidding essentially, they backed down. And after two days, I was resuspended, and I then took high court action, and uh, successfully actually, uh, the the Labour Party bureaucracy tried on three occasions to get the hearing delayed. We were calling for an expedited hearing, and when the at the third preliminary hearing, the judge specified a particular week in which the hearing would have to be held or heard. They then realized that they were going to have to go to court and I think they recognized they've got a very flimsy case and so I was then uh, hit with a, a third suspension. I mean and the, the accusations which merited the suspension were so absurd. One of them was because I'd given an interview to Sky TV in Britain where I had chided Margaret Hodge for drawing an equivalence between the Holocaust and receiving a letter from the Labour Party and I received an offensive obscene email from a Conservative supporter uh, taking me to task for that and saying how much she supported Margaret Hodge. And I responded very politely saying, dear Claire, thank you for your email. You might like to view this video and gave her a link to a video of Norman Finkelstein, a, an acclaimed Jewish academic who was addressing Margaret Hodge directly and basically taking her to task for drawing that equivalence and pointing out that he'd lost uh, relatives in the Shoah and, uh, you know, was... It was an offence to offensive to him that she was behaving in in that way, um, and that was held up as a um, as a justification or one of the justifications for resuspending me. And another justification was because I told people at that conference that you mentioned, Amiko, where we spoke, um, that I was going to be attending the the conference, speaking at various fringe meetings, and a number of the uh, supporters of the. Uh, Labour Friends of Israel and others on the right of the party had, uh, particularly people like Ruth Smith, had um, been very critical about the fact that I was going to be in the environs of the Labour Party conference and saying I shouldn't be anywhere near. And the, so the media came on to me for a comment and I merely said, these, these characters need to pipe down and focus on exposing the Conservatives, getting behind the leader of the Labour Party and fighting for a Labour victory at the election. That was given as another reason to suspend me 
And the implication was there was some anti-Semitic overtone to my comment that they should pipe down. And so this is uh, the, the level to which they have uh, sunk. And I think the mistake has been where the movement has, has made a, a huge error, in my opinion, in actually uh, allowing this to gain momentum. It comes back to the advice I was giving to, to Jeremy in not actually standing up to it. We absolutely, it seems to me, have to confront this head on and uh, make the point. And, and I think many people don't really get this, but I think we have to argue unambiguously that Zionism is inconsistent with socialism. I mean, I know the Jewish labor movement have this thing called um, uh, Zionist socialism. I mean, the, the, the two are a contradiction in terms in my uh, opinion. It's uh, like um, Zionist socialism is like racist social. I mean, yeah, you, you know, or it's like, it's like talking about racist anti-racism or anti-racist racism. It's a, it's a completely nonsensical construction, but that requires us to have a discussion about what Zionism is. Yes. Zionism isn't some mushy, you know, what they're trying to, what, what the groups like the Jewish labor movement and Zionist groups here in the United States are trying to do is convert Zionism into some sort of personal identity thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you say, I'm a Zionist, and then I say to you, well, Zionism is racism, it's like, oh my God, you attacked me, you hurt my feelings, you made me feel unsafe. Uh, and that's what they've converted it into. And that's what people in the UK in particular have gotten completely caught up in. And oh, very much so, very much so. I mean, lost I think, I sight think... of what Zionism is. Zionism is the belief that Palestinians can and must be expelled from their homeland so yeah. that settlers can take their place. Zionism is the belief that Palestinian refugees cannot return to their homeland, to the towns and villages from which they were expelled solely and exclusively because they're not Jewish. Okay, I don't care how that makes you feel. That's the reality. Absolutely. Like, right. So what, what I'm saying is it requires us to be willing to have that discussion to explain what Zionism yeah. means, not to Ruth Smith or not to Joan Ryan, but what it means to Palestinians thrown off their land, expelled, their homes demolished, their children killed. Yeah. because they're not Jewish. That's yeah. what Zionism is. And if that makes you feel bad, or it makes you feel like, you know, I've hurt your feelings, tough luck. Tough luck. What I was going to go on, Sally, yeah. is absolutely, uh, and you articulated it far, far better than I, than I could, but absolutely, I think uh, what we have to do is, is articulate the fact that our Zionism is a racist ideology. And I think the other mistake that the soft lift, if you like, made on this was, was really what you've just set out there and failing to recognize the international dimensions to this. You know, this isn't something that's kind of, you know, as we know, unique to, uh, to Britain. This is something which is happening all over the world where progressive politicians are being, uh, being demonized and being um, uh, attacked uh, in order to, you know, protect their interests. And of course, you know, some of these left, so-called you know, left commentators don't seem to have, in my experience anyway, I'm not seeing much evidence of them 
identifying the inconsistencies as well, because you have a situation where, you know, Netanyahu is cozying up to Viktor Orban, you know? I mean, a more anti-Semitic uh, um, political leader, it'd be hard to, to come across. But of course, he's, uh, you know, he supports the existence of Israel, and so he's seen as a, you know, sort of a pro-Zionist, and so he's seen as, a, as, as okay. But in terms of his kind of attitude to, to Jewish people in his own country, you know, that, that seems to be the straw of veil over that. And I think it's really important that we identify those inconsistencies in their, uh, in their positioning. And indeed, as you uh, quite rightly point out there, Ali, the, the fact that, uh, you know, this is very much a racist ideology. You know, for Zionism to flourish it is at the expense of the Palestinian people. It's an absolute outrage and can't be allowed to stand in. It is absolutely inconsistent with socialism. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know and everybody watching it isn't necessarily socialist. I don't know if even of all the panels are. But for people who, who claim to be certainly in the, you know, on the left, politics in Britain, socialist, you can't be a socialist and, and sympathetic to Zionism at the same time. As you say, it's like being a racist socialist. It's just two things don't compute. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. There's, there's been a, a I, I, I see it as there's been a, a very powerful myth that has been created that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are synonymous. And it's a very powerful tool stifling any type of constructive dialogue, the presentation of the facts, uh, valid policy analysis. Because to be able to control the dialogue by controlling the definition of the terminology, that is incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I equate that to what's been happening in this country with the Republicans and their pollster Frank Luntz who has his word labs, and he's convinced uh, the Republicans that the Pentagon should be called the Department of Fen the de Defense, that uh, tax relief is better terminology than tax cuts. They have been able to convince voters to vote against their be best interest by controlling the terminology. And that, to me, is one of the very important things that, that has to that, that, that has to be done here is a, those who are in, in, in sync with, with, with our thinking have to reclaim the terminology because it, it's, it's having a huge effect here. In, in my laying out the, 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 the timeline that I did, what, what happens is by using that terminology, they are able to set African Americans and Palestinians because to support Palestinians makes you anti-Semitic and nobody in this country wants to be labeled as such. And that becomes a very, very powerful wedge in developing any type of allegiances, alliances, or, or, or friendships between uh, Groups that have very, very just, similar interests. Uh, you know, I want to interject here. Go ahead, Ali. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, because your question also talked about tactics, their tactics and our response. And I think, uh, I, I just want to reinforce what Chris said. Uh, and I think that this is really a problem on the left generally, which is appeasement doesn't work. You know, uh, the, the example I like to give is a few years ago, um, the European Union 
came up with this very timid policy, which they don't even enforce, that goods from Israeli settlements should be labeled as coming from settlements. It wasn't that goods should be banned coming from settlements, it's just that they should have a label on them. It was the most minimal policy and they spent a hundred years discussing it. And then they passed the policy and they still don't enforce it properly. But the, the, and all of this timidity was to avoid upsetting Israel, to do the very minimum. Israeli ministers referred to the European Union heads as Nazis. They said, what you're doing is the same as the Nazis did, calling for a boycott of Jewish businesses. So what that demonstrates is that if you take the most minimal stance, if you say, oh, well, Israel, maybe you shouldn't build settlements because it might harm you know, it's unhelpful to a two-state solution. They're going to call you a Nazi anyway. So don't appease them. Tell the truth. Be clear. Be principled. We, of course, as anti-racists, as Palestinians, as people who believe in, in humanity, we fight anti-Semites the way we fight other racists. But when people accuse us of anti-Semitism for defending our rights, defending human rights, defending universal values, we don't back down to them. We don't appease them. Appeasement doesn't work. And the disaster of what happened to Jeremy Corbyn is largely, as, as Chris said, because of appeasement. That appeasement policy, you know, I was they, just gonna... if, 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 if Corbyn had stood up and rallied his supporters and said, I don't have to apologize to anyone. I've been on the front lines fighting racism while, uh, you know, all of these people were supporting apartheid in South Africa. And I challenge anyone to, to come and show evidence that I'm a racist or this movement is racist. He would have put it to bed. He would have stopped it in its tracks. But this constant, oh, well, we have to meet with these racists and we have to appease them and we have to sign on to their 10 points and we have to do this and we have, it's endless. All they will do is demand more and more. And we see this in the United States as well. So that's, that's the one thing. The other point I just want to make very quickly is that why are they going after the, the Sanderses and the Corbins and Chris Williamson and so on? Is because our movement is making progress. The grassroots is with us. And this is very important. As we talk about the thuggish tactics that the Israel lobby engages in, it's important to understand that often that kind of thuggery and bullying and sabotage and smearing is a sign of weakness because opinion is changing at the grassroots. So I think it's very important that we not be discouraged by these tactics and we not retreat and we not retreat into a narrative that says, oh, the Israel lobby is all powerful. It is not all powerful. We can fight back. We are gaining ground. We are convincing people that the struggle for Palestinian rights is a struggle for universal human rights. And it's one that unites us with everybody who is fighting against racism and injustice in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ali, I, I thank you. That was, that, that's brilliant. And you know, when I, when I was we were discussing putting together this panel, you know, I've heard all three of you speak. Um, Chris, I heard you speak, uh, I think last time you were standing outside in the rain and there were maybe 10 people there and you just gave this riveting speech right off the cuff 
in, in, in Brighton. And uh, so, and, and the beauty of, I think, what the three of you have brought here is um, being able to say what most people will take hours and hours, but to say it quickly and, and, and uh, succinctly. And I appreciate that. So thank you for that. Um, I, we've been going on for a little bit more than an hour, so it's probably a good idea to open it up to questions um, so that we don't take all day, although we could. Um, and so, um, let's see, Jamil, do you want to uh, throw out those, you know, start presenting the questions? And I think the best thing to do is we'll hear a question and just freely go ahead and, and, and reply, you know, as you see fit. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh, we've received several questions and we're going to try and get through as many as we can. This first question is anonymous. Um, here's a question. Considering the strong and powerful influence of the Zionists in both the US and UK, do you feel that trying to work through the system of electoral politics as it's currently constructed will reap any rewards? Can anyone cite an example of a victory for the Palestinian cause that was achieved through electoral politics? Mm. So is there any point in sticking to, in, in, in investing our efforts in electoral politics as, as uh, you know, people who support Palestinian rights and progressive uh, ideas? And maybe Chris, you want to start with that? Because oh, you're... I mean, you're building yeah, I mean, uh, well, look, I think there's a major issue and I've been calling to question the... Uh, you know, the suitability of our, of our democracy in, in, in reality. I mean, you know, we, we pride ourselves on what we refer to as representative democracy, but I've been posing the question in the last few months, um, who are the representatives actually representing? Because it's not really the British people in, in Britain's case. I mean, if, if they were, we wouldn't have, in the fifth biggest economy in the world, 14 million people living in poverty. But I think the key thing is really, you know, in terms of um, ensuring that we get politicians, you know, who are fit for purpose and are brave and are prepared to, you know, to stand up for what's right. I shouldn't be the odd one out. I shouldn't be an oddity. I mean, I was the only person that was prepared to put my head above the parapet and speak out for people who had been badly treated, who'd been falsely accused. And to me, it didn't feel it was any great sort of heroic action on my part. It just felt, you know, just second nature. It's something that you had to do. But I think um, where I think Jeremy was, was badly let down, I mean, well, one, I think in not actually trusting his own instincts, but I think in terms of the lack of support that came from, you know, close confidants and indeed some of these so-called, you know, progressive left commentators in the media, because they bought into the Zionist narrative. They bought into the witch hunt. And they, if you like, in a way, made it difficult for Jeremy. And I think this is where one of the key things is so important in terms of standing up to these bullies, to these thugs, to these criminals in reality, is solidarity. I mean, I always make the point, you know, solidarity is absolutely crucial. It's always important, but it only really counts when it's difficult, not just when it's easy, that's why I felt it was absolutely essential to stand up for these people who had been so badly uh, treated. And I, I think, think what we therefore need is to recognize the strength of our own common endeavor and to you know, demand and force the, 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 the issue and, and to get behind anybody who is prepared to put the head, head above the parapet. And, as, and, and I think it was Ali that made the point, you know, we are making progress, we are making ground. And you know, many, many, many thousands of people grassroots members, that is, came to my support 
when I was suspended from the Labour Party. So I think, you know, more and more people are uh, prepared to stand up. And I think what's happened after the last election in, in the Labour Party, the new leader and, and the direction the front of the party is taking now, uh, and people can increasingly see the atrocities that are being perpetrated by the Israeli state are increasingly prepared to, to stand up. And so I'm fairly hopeful that, you know, that we, that we can make significant ground. Uh, you know, we made ground. And, and I think, you know, things can happen very, very quickly, you know. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, if we just recognize the strength of our common endeavor, you know, we can really, really start to, to motor and really make a big difference. When you, when you look at the um, civil rights movement in the United States, there was a three-pronged approach. There was the legislative approach, there was the judicial approach, and there was activism in the streets. They worked, they worked together. I think abandoning any one of those elements weakens, not strengthens uh, your efforts. And looking at it again, here in the US, um, Rashida Tlaib was elected, Ilhan Omar was elected, uh, AOC, and, and so the squad. Now, we, can, we, we know we've got issues with, with, with the consistency of their votes and the consistency of their messaging. Some of that, though, comes from people just once they got elected, not keeping their, their, their hand on the till, not being sure that the people that they sent to office do what they were sent there to do. That's a, that's a part of the process. But I, I think to, uh, to abandon, and Bernie Sanders, to, to, what, to what Miko said early in, in, in the discussion, uh, Bernie Sanders made tremendous progress in, 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 in terms of furthering the issues on the left. Uh, so I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marathon, it, it's not a sprint, not to sound trite, but you can't abandon any of those elements in the struggle because each of them contribute to the other. Yeah, Ali, Ali, you've been you've been uh, you know uh, keeping them keeping them honest. Uh, you know, starting with Rashida and her J Street endorsement, and you know certainly Bernie, you've been on his case, and um, and now with Ilhan Omar and the Iran, uh, you know this this uh, new thing. But uh, is there any point in, in working through electoral politics? What do you, you know, think? I, th I think it would be very easy to say no. And it would be very easy to point to the debacle of Bernie Sanders walking away at the very moment when he should have stayed and fought. And looking at, at uh, the, uh, you know, the, the failure of the, the Jeremy Corbyn movement I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to avoid that it failed. But I don't think, you know, and I think it's easy to, it would be easy to take a, a, a sort of a more radical than thou position and say electoral politics is, is just pointless. Uh, clearly, it's not the solution by itself. And that's where I think Dr. Uh, Wilmer is quite, is quite right, that it has to be part of a strategy. Because look, to me, it's ultimately, it's not about Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. And it's not about finding a leader who you've put all your trust in. Um, but what I look at is, I look, what inspires me is not Bernie Sanders or not Jeremy Corbyn. What inspires me is the millions of people who put their energy and their hopes and their money into trying to change their countries and the world 
for into a more peaceful and more economically just place. And so the, the problem is when these electoral movements fail, then all that energy is potentially dissipated and lost and people feel defeated and they feel like it was all for nothing. And so that's where our political systems are broken and people are talking about the futility of, of working within the Democratic Party, the futility of working within the Labour Party. And I understand that after these recent experiences. The question is, how, how can we put that energy, whether it's into third parties or into extra parliamentary movements or into reviving uh, trade union movements? I mean, for, for goodness sake, we need trade unions more than ever where, when you look at the, the, the governments in our countries, particularly the United States, that is happy to send the lowest paid workers to be sacrificed to the coronavirus so that, uh, so that uh, big business bosses can continue to reap profits. Uh, that, that it's, just, it's just obscene. And so the absence of a strong labor movement uh, makes, makes people much more vulnerable. So we have to be talking about where to direct that energy uh, so that it's not lost. Uh, and, where, and, and the other thing I always say is that, you know, yes, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, I, I hope uh, nobody's going to care now, but I, I, I met him and he is a very nice guy. I think that would have been on the cover of the Daily Mail a few months ago or a, a few years ago that uh, I said I met him. Uh, but, you know, he's, he seems like a lovely guy. Bernie Sanders, I disagree with him on many things, but he does also seem like, a, you know, a, 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 someone you'd want to sit and have a cup of tea with. But that's not the point. Bernie Sanders is not running to be my uncle. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is not running to be my best friend. Rashida Tlaib is not running to be my aunt, okay? These people are politicians who want to wield power over us. And therefore, you have to be absolutely relentless in holding them accountable. The right, we have to learn from the right on this. I, I say this all the time. The right never takes yes for an answer. If you, when you give in to the demands of the right, they say, okay, well, that's uh, a small down payment on, we want, on what we want. Now, here's the list of other things we demand from you. And I see this contrary tendency on the left of making excuses for politicians, of saying, well, oh, well, you know, Jeremy can't do that now because, well, you know, he's under attack or this is as far as Bernie can go right now. Don't make excuses for them. Demand more. And when they give you what you want, demand even more. That's the only way we yeah. can move the political window to where we want it to go. You can't appease your way into power. You can't concede your way into power. You can't, uh, you know, apologize your way into power. You have to make clear demands and stick with them. And of course, politics involves negotiations, but you never go into a negotiation uh, having conceded everything at the outset. And sadly, I see that there's, all, there's too much of that on the left. We have to stand up for what we believe in. I couldn't agree with you more on right. that, Alan. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I've been now working with others to try to launch a new grassroots movement in, in Britain. 
Uh, obviously, we've been um, we've been uh, uh, stymied a little bit by the, uh, uh, the COVID nineteen crisis and the and the lockdown. But we're very clear about what we want to do. First of all, we want to yes, obviously, focus on on domestic social policy, but we want to also be unambiguously uh, anti-imperialist as well. And we want to your point really about um, raising expectations. There, look, as I've already mentioned. The fifth biggest, Britain is the fifth biggest economy in the world, and yet it ain't working in our interests. And we, as ordinary working class people in Britain, have far more in common with working class people around the world than we have with the elites that are pulling the strings and neoliberals that have actually been manipulating the economy uh, to benefit them at the expense of, of everybody else. So that's what we intend to do. And yes, it is extra parliamentary activity, uh, and it's about trying to build capacity in communities, it's about you know, trying to sort of do things for ourselves like the Black Panther Party did in the States. Uh, but it's also very much about, you know, raising political consciousness, raising expectations, and obviously, yes, continuing to work through the uh, electoral system. Uh, and I think Wilma made the point, you know, all these things are needed. You know, the street protest, the kind of, you know, political consciousness raising, the, the, the you know, the electoral politics, all these things have to work together one thing on its own ain't going to work you know extra parliamentary activity is not going to change the world but it might on its own but it might help to you know shape uh, the opinions of the wider general public it might help to bring pressure and shape the policy direction of, of politicians and it also what i'm hoping through this movement that we will bring through new uh, and inspire new uh, working class leaders to to come through and pick up the electoral cudgels as it were to you know to take uh, you know the message into the uh, into the uh, debating chambers of local authorities and ultimately the, the House of Commons uh, to ensure that we start to get legislation which is fit for purpose. You know, which does address you know the inequalities in society, which does address the climate crisis and stops these appalling bloody wars which are taking place and the uh, you know the arms sales which seem to uh, hold so much sway. You know, our politicians, it seems to me, are in hock on both sides of the Atlantic to the military industrial complex. And we have to find a better way. And of course, Jeremy, you know, was disturbing that, that status quo. And that's another reason why, of course, you know, he was attacked and he was badly let down as a, just to repeat that point, Miko, by, you know, key commentators who should have been on his side, claimed to be on his side, but they got sidetracked with this, this whole bogus anti-Semitism uh, uh, scandal and crisis. And that derailed us. And that absolutely derailed us. And, uh, you know, the ultimate consequence of that has been to see the, the Corbyn project be utterly uh, destroyed and we've got to start to rebuild. And that's why I'm, and he did ask me to mention briefly what I was doing in relation to that uh, movement, uh, Nico. So apologies if I'm going off slightly off piece there, but that's why, uh, you know, I feel it's so important that we do, uh, you know, focus on that. Or well, that's why I'm going to put my energies into anyway, with a view to, as I say, raising political consciousness, getting these street protests going, doing things for ourselves and trying to shape the political agenda that way. All right, next question, Jamil. Okay, the next question is from David H. Bernie Sanders wanted to make future aid to Israel conditional on Israel changing its policies towards the Palestinians and Palestine, as opposed to the present arrangement of giving Israel unconditional support while looking the other way as Israel breaks international laws and commits crimes against Palestinians. If he had not made that part of his platform, do you think that he might have won the Democratic Party nomination or at least still be in the race to become a nominee? 
No. Do you think his stance on Palestine, on Israel, is uh, was 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 uh, instrumental in his in his stepping down? In particularly no. his uh, wanting to condition uh, the yeah. you know the four billion per year that we sent to Israel in military aid based on you know human human rights violations. I think he was actually the, the part of the problem for the Democratic Party establishment is that his views on Palestine, his criticism of Israel, was very popular with the party base. Uh, you know, he was winning primaries uh, despite or even because of the fact that he was critical of Israel. So that's why we saw uh, over the last year or two. Uh, an internal uh, lobby group called the Democratic Majority for Israel was established, basically one of these, uh, you know, political action committees uh, to try to shore up support for Israel within the Democratic Party. And, and Democratic Majority for Israel actually ran ads against Bernie Sanders in Iowa and in Nevada, I believe, and what was interesting about their attacks on, on uh, Bernie Sanders is they didn't mention his positions on Israel because they, they feared that would backfire. If they actually put out an ad saying, Bernie, look at Bernie Sanders, he's critical of Israel, that would probably have made him more popular with Democratic Party voters. So the Democratic majority for Israel ads focused on, oh, he's too old, or he's, you know, America isn't ready for socialism but didn't mention Israel, because that's the, that's the thing that is really scaring the Democratic Party establishment, is that primary voters are actually perfectly okay with criticism of Israel. It's the, it's the financiers and the, the, you know, the, 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 the people who make the big donations to the party uh, and the establishment and the mainstream media who, who will not allow those positions to be aired. Ali is, is right. There is a, a big difference between the establishment slash elite of the Democratic Party who are basically right there with uh, the Republicans in, in, in most of their issues uh, and the base of the party. And, that, and, and that's what really has caused Bernie Sanders so much, so much problem. Because if you think back to 2016, he wasn't articulating the same position uh, against Israel as he artic as he was articulating in this in this race, and they still stood up against him because he, like Jeremy Corbyn, was and and I mentioned this in 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 the in some of what I said earlier. Some of the other issues that Bernie was talking about: um, uh, college edu uh, 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 loan student loan debt, um, Medicare for all. The, the, the bigger structural issues de uh, dealing with the military industrial complex. He was talking about redistribution of wealth and that in this country is the third rail. You, you, you don't wanna talk about that. You don't wanna talk about reorganizing American uh, geopolitical structure uh, around the world. You don't want to talk about that. You don't want to talk about Venezuela. You don't want to talk about Brazil and, and, and Bolivia and what the United States is doing there. Those were the things that were causing so much heartburn to Nancy Pelosi and to Chuck Schumer and to, and to those elites in the party. His position on Israel damn sure didn't help him, but, but 
again, look at look at what they did to him in, in 16, and he wasn't taking nearly the position then as it related to Israel as he's taking now. So it was like it was a coalition between the neoliberals and the, the Zionists again, the, the, the similar sort of situation that I mentioned in, in the UK. Um, that, that sort of did for, for Bernie. So Ali, are you, are you, so just so I understand, are you saying that his position on Palestine and his, or his position on Israel is, was not the reason for his demise? Or was not part of the reason? I think it's definitely part of the reasons that uh, the establishment was dead set against him. But I agree with Wilma that, you know, his, I mean, my friend and my, my friend Joseph Massad, the professor at Columbia, wrote a really nice article a few weeks ago, uh, really examining Bernie Sanders' positions. And he's a very mild social democrat. Yeah. And his criticism of Israel really doesn't go very far. But it's only in American terms that it looks incredibly radical. And you know, in 2014, which is not so long ago, during the Gulf War, Bernie was, you know, angrily shouting down constituents at the town hall meeting who were, who were uh, raising, you know, the fact that Israel was uh, butchering Palestinian civilians. Mm -hmm. So just from 2014 to 2020, uh, Sanders became much more vocally critical of Israel, not as far as I would like him to go, but certainly in American terms, he was much more forthright. Uh, much more willing to speak out against Israeli attacks on Gaza and so on. And that's not because Bernie, after 70-odd years, suddenly had an epiphany. It was because the grassroots demanded it. It's because you couldn't go to a town hall meeting of you know Democratic voters without someone raising the question of Palestinian rights. The grassroots pushed Bernie Sanders. So that's why I'm not ready to say, well, abandon party politics or abandon electoral politics, because it is about changing every part of society. And believe me, the, the, the growth of support for the BDS movement is a massive headache for Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi can't just decide what Democratic voters should think. So I think that it is important to to keep pressure up in every venue we can. I certainly would never advocate that we put all our eggs in the electoral basket because clearly that is not a winning strategy. But I agree with Wilma that we don't abandon any field of battle. And some people are more suited to some arenas than others. I mean, I think I would be terrible at, at uh, being a, a Democratic Party activist. But I'll, I'll do the things I can do. And if there are other people who can do that work and, and do it in a way that is principled and firm about what they're demanding for, then I would encourage them to keep doing it. All right, Jamil, you want to add the next question? Yeah. So the next question is from Cian. And the question is, the evangelical pastors are complicit in making Zionism popular. How does the panel think this should be challenged? Trump surrounds himself with these people. They should be exposed as the frauds that they are every day, every way, all the time. And particularly the Christian right in this country is anything but Christian and they're, and they're wrong, they're not right. Um, the, the hypocrisy in their positions just needs to constantly be 
be highlighted. And this whole idea of the rapture and, 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 and that's what uh, supposedly religiously is what brings them together makes absolutely no sense. Uh, but we have, to, we have to understand that the, that the Republican and conservatives in this country have captured the Christian right for political reasons, very similar to the way that the Zionists have tried to capture Judaism for political reasons. And uh, uh, unfortunately, those uh, inconsistencies and that hypocrisy does not get called out for what it is because in many conversations and in many instances, as soon as you start to question someone's religion or religiosity or the basis of their belief system, all of a sudden that becomes a conversation that is offline. But they have to be called out for the frauds that they are. Can I just say as well, I mean, speaking, I know this is a, you know, a US-based question more, but I think, I mean, I agree with what Wilbur said there about exposing, but I think the other thing, and this is where I think it's such a tragedy that Bernie Sanders has, has, has stepped out of the, of the presidential race, because like in the UK, the biggest cohort in the US in elections are the non-voters. And I think somebody like uh, Bernie Sanders, or a politician of that ilk, who could inspire you know, the people who, who kind of opted out of the democratic process, have opted out of politics, don't feel that it kind of represents them or, or, or uh, serves their, their interests in that sense, and very often it doesn't. Bringing them to the uh, party in that sense, bringing them into the electoral uh, process, I think, you, you know, if we could inspire those people in that way, and I, you know, maybe I'm a dreamer, <laughs> I don't know, but I do think, honestly, that that, that is our the best route are, uh, to uh, you know, get a sort of a progressive prospectus uh, adopted in government is by ensuring that you have a program which can you know, reach beyond the usual suspect, the people that you know, normally participate. And I think turnout in elections in the States is probably even lower than it is in the, in the UK. So I think there's, I think absolutely with Wilma's saying, but I think in addition to that, you, know, you need a kind of a, a progressive program that's going to speak to people that the present sort of duopoly in both the UK and the and the states isn't actually doing. So some of that I think is inherent in the two-party system versus the parliamentary system. In, in in your system, there's much more representation. You have a lot you have a lot more opportunity for people to get involved because you have more parties involved. Here it's it's a it's more of a binary um, option. And when you look at the politics of the Republicans and the Democrats, particularly now, uh, I mean, you've got Nancy Pelosi supporting the move on Venezuela. You've got Elizabeth Warren supporting the move on Bolivia, and they're supposed to be Democrats. Yeah. And, and, no, I sort of, so I, I think some of that, the lack of voting, the lack of participation, some of, I think some of it has to do with uh, your, your parliamentary System is much more inclusive than the two-party system here. Yeah, I mean, I think the point is, just in terms of the binary choice, it's not really a binary choice, is it? Because you've got two sides of the same coin and both sides of the, of the Atlantic, really. And that's what I mean. I mean, this is where I think Bernie was offering something different, uh, you know, within that sort of uh, two-party system. He as was Jeremy offering something different. And Jeremy got very close uh, in 2017. And, um, you know, without going into all the details of the sabotage that 
that uh, the party was subjected to, which has been exposed in the leaked document. You know, uh, as Miko pointed out at the, uh, at the beginning of the programme, uh, a few thousand votes across the country would have seen a Corbyn-led Labour government and the course of history would have been very, very different. And I think it would have had consequences, implications, positive implications for the rest of the world had that, had that eventuality come to pass. Uh, and I, I think that would have been a fantastic uh, result uh, in 2017. And Corbyn came so close and did so much better than uh, his own party bureaucracy wanted, as, as you, you mentioned, the leaks, the documents that came out that showed that the unelected bureaucrats in Labour headquarters were actually trying to sabotage the yeah. party's own electoral campaign, and they succeeded in sabotaging it in a very similar way to how the Democratic National Committee fixed the 2016 primary, fixed the 2020 primary. They tried to cancel the New York primary, and a federal judge just ordered them to, to, to reinstate it. But the point is that, you know, let's imagine an alternative timeline where we don't live in this absolute nightmare we're in now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where Jeremy Corbyn had won or Bernie Sanders had won. We have to be realistic that absolutely the same forces would oh, have yeah. fought them every step of the way. We, we all know that. But that, that underscores the point about how, you know, even if you did win an election, as, we, as we've seen time and again, that only gets you so far without a strong progressive principled movements, trade unions, uh, and, and extra parliamentary organizations to hold, hold them accountable. And, and I think that, that that is the inevitable lesson of the Sanders and Corbyn defeats. And I think just to bring it back to our, our main topic is that what we've seen, whether we also have to know what our strengths are. So if we, if we come back to the issue of Palestine, the Palestine solidarity movement is strong at the grassroots. It has wide support. It has deep support. Uh, I feel that when I tra travel around the United States or around the world, something, who knows when, when we'll be able to do that again, but you feel it, you see it on campuses, in churches, all around the place. It's very deeply felt. What the Israel, Israel and its lobby have found is they do not have deep and wide support. They have a small core of fanatical support, and they also have a lot of friends in high places. Uh, and, and that's been their strategy. It was, it's in the Reut uh, document that I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion that Israel has to capitalize on its strengths of, of, of cultivating, again, that's the language used by uh, the Reut Institute, um, cultivating uh, you know, leaders and influencers. And that also underlines Israel's strategy of bringing uh, you know, uh, up-and-coming political leaders and bloggers and artists and so on, on these all-expenses-paid junkets to Israel. That's a recognition that Israel doesn't have a lot of grassroots support. So what you have to do is sort of cultivate uh, support among, um, you know, more, more influential audiences, among media elites and so on. And people like, uh, you know, uh, uh, let's name names, people like Owen Jones, the Guardian columnist, who, uh, you know, w was uh, very much part of the 
anti-Semitism smear campaign against Jeremy Corbyn and the left, who headlined an event for the Jewish labor movement, which uh, you know is misnamed. The Jewish labor movement is a right-wing group that worked very closely with the Israeli embassy to advance the goals of uh, the Israeli government within the Labour Party and within the UK uh, more more broadly. Um, so I think, again, we have to analyze where our strengths are and where the strengths of the opposition are. And our strength is in the, you know, in, in building broad support, in building coalitions, building relationships with other anti-racist, progressive, grassroots movements in our countries, we're focusing on the UK and the US today, but also around the world. And in identifying Israel today as a rallying point for fascists around the world. Uh, again, we could go into, we don't ha have time in this session, into the long history of uh, Zionist co cooperation with the right in Latin America, in the United States, in South Africa, and so on. But just today in contemporary terms, you look at where is, who are Israel's closest friends, fascists and anti-Semites like Jair Bolsonaro, like Viktor Orban, like Donald Trump, uh, like the uh, neo-Nazi uh, Alternative for Deutschland party, uh, a party founded by literal Nazis, which is one of the pro most pro-Israel elements in, uh, in, in modern day Germany. So, I'm just saying that to say we have to have a good analysis of the lay of the land to find out how we move forward, where our opportunities are to continue to build and strengthen support, despite the uh, big setbacks we've had politically recently and the inevitable setbacks we will continue to have. But if I could just well, quickly uh, please, uh, Mikko, um, the late great uh, trade union leader, Bob Crow, he said, if you fight you won't always win but if you don't fight you'll always lose and i think we have to just keep going really and as tony ben said just another quote you know uh, uh, there's no such thing as a uh, a final victory or final defeat each generation has to fight the same battles over and over again and uh, i think those two great figures from the labor movement in, in britain should inspire us to to keep going and you know we can make we can make progress and you know ali's made the point you know on this issue anyway i think we are making we are making ground and we are winning we are winning hearts and minds for the wider general public and uh, you know we just have to we have to keep going because it's the right thing to do and like bob said you know if we don't we are going to definitely lose if you don't fight you'll always lose yeah it sounds like a good place to stop it's been two hours so i think with jamil we should probably probably don't have time for any more questions um so i will just wrap it up by thanking all three of you gentlemen for for great discussion um, it's, um, I'm honored and very pleased that you all agreed to take your time and be part of this. Um, like Jamil said earlier, we're having a second part discussion because this is a big, a big topic. Next week, the same, same time, same, uh, same day, next Wednesday, same time, same channel. Uh, we're going to have, um, Asa Winstanley from the UK, who also had, uh, an interesting experience with the Labour Party and the anti-Semitism issue. And he also writes for Electronic Intifada. Uh, Esti Chandler, who is uh, the chair of uh, the board chair of JVP Action, and uh, Anya Parampil, who is a uh, reporter, a journalist, and works with Gray Zone. So um, 
once again, thank you all. And I hope that uh, we'll have a good participation again next week. Jamil, did you want to uh, say one more thing before we close? Sure. So there, there will be a follow-up email going out with all the panelists' Twitter handles. So we encourage everybody to follow them and acquaint yourself with their work if you haven't already. Um, like Miko said, don't forget to register for part two of this event. I understand there were some limitations in the amount of people Zoom was letting in. So for next week's event, we're going to make sure that there is no limitation. People can come in. But again, these are going to be uh, live streamed on Facebook. So you can always direct people there. And um, yeah, just go to MikoPled.com to register. And, um, you know, uh, this hopefully won't be the last event we do. So we're, we're, we are planning some more events in the future. So if you can keep up with Nico's social media, you'll, you'll be aware of everything that's going on. And thanks again to our panelists for their contributions and insights. And yeah, stay safe, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so All the best. much. Cheers. Solidarity. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye now.